Good to be with you this morning. We want to take a detailed look at the book of 2 Thessalonians. Got a hand down here. Thank you, brother. Come back here. So if you have your Bible, if you'll turn to chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, I'll read the first chapter, which is 12 verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord had us focused on that this morning, didn't he? That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord add his blessing to the word. Now, I think the two letters of Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, are very important in many regards. But one of the ways I think that is helpful as we think about being disciples of the Lord is understanding that there are certain books that we can really focus on and really get our handle around in terms of our thinking easier than other books. And in thinking about studies in First and Second Thessalonians, I was thinking there's, there's a couple of things that, about the Thessalonian epistles that are very unique. You've maybe thought of this yourself. But these epistles would become, of Paul's writings, or maybe all of the New Testament writings, would come closest to letters to a new church because... Paul wrote both these letters just a matter of weeks after he planted the church in Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a major 
city in the Roman Empire of that day. It was a port city and a major city. So we live, you're a suburb here, of a major port city here. And if we could think about, we're not a new church plant here, right? Boulevard Assembly's been here for a while, but maybe the Lord would lead some of us to help in starting a new work. And if you're thinking about, well, what would be some of the core ingredients, right? What would be some of the, the major characteristics that we would want to teach and live out in a new assembly? I think the two Thessalonian letters bring us to that better than any other of the writings we have in the New Testament. So the core ingredients of what it means to be a genuine Christian and the core ingredients of what it is to be a genuine testimony, an assembly of Christians, we have right here in these two letters. And to me, I mean, 1 Thessalonians is five chapters long and 2 Thessalonians is three chapters long. And as we're going to see, even though... They're the shorter epistles. They're still loaded with valuable spiritual information. And there's been a lot of controversy over some of the teaching in these letters. And so it's, you know, Romans is 16 chapters long. First Corinthians is 16 chapters long. These are massive writings that take a lot of time and concentration to study. And of course, they're very valuable in that regard. But that's why I feel like the Thessalonian epistles, if, if you don't have time to get into a detailed study in, say, Romans or 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Thessalonians. Start there. And if, and if we're involved in a new work for the Lord, or if you're a new Christian, young Christian in the Lord, that's a good place to start because there are epistles that, that are concise that deal with the core areas of what it means to be disciples of the Lord Jesus, and yet they're not so big a volume that it, we get discouraged and give up on studying them. So that's one of the values, I think, of why we wanted to do this particular series of studies. Now, we are, we are skipping volume one because we're going to 2 Thessalonians. We're skipping volume one. We're skipping 1 Thessalonians, and maybe some other time we'll see an opportunity to do that. I think you've had teaching in that recently. But we want to move into 2 Thessalonians because it deals with matters that deal with the judgment of God upon this, this world. And we've taken the title, He Has Appointed a Day. The He referring to God. And it's a very solemn title, isn't it? He has appointed a selected day. Now, most of you probably have thought about where that comes from. It comes from Acts 17, doesn't it? One of the most important chapters in the New Testament, if not in the entire Bible. As we'll see as we look to it here in a minute. But he has appointed a day, and the subtitle we're, we have on this series is, he has appointed a day, and man's vaunted civilization 
has an expiration date. <laughs> Praise the Lord, someone says. Now, most of us, as we grew up in school, whether you were homeschooled or public schooled or private schooled, I mean, I took Western Civ. Everybody here, you take Western Civ, right? I mean, that was just a core course that we had to take. And I can remember the, the textbooks and how they elevated the man's civilization. That where would we be at without all the ingredients, you know, the art, the architecture, the music, the history, the literature, the poetry, all of, all of these characteristics of modern and ancient civilization. And the interesting thing is the textbooks that I had left God out. <laughs> you're going to talk about something you're boasting about on this planet, civilization, as if it was created by man apart from God and that man is able to sustain it, support it, increase it, protect it. All these centuries. And that's why I thought it's important to make that announcement. The Bible makes that announcement. God has appointed a day when that civilization that lost people boast about so much, it has an end date. It has a culmination date. And that's sobering, isn't it? He calls it the righteous judgment of God here in verse 5. There's a day coming when the righteous judgment of God is going to be exercised on this planet, which happens to belong to him, not to man. So he has a right to do that, doesn't he? So we think about that. I mean, we all know about expiration dates. I threw out a bottle in the refrigerator this morning of uh, salad dressing because it had an expiration date. And I don't know about you, if you've ever had mayonnaise that even just a week beyond the expiration date, it's a painful thing to learn, a painful lesson to learn to use it in your intestines. Sure was for me, you know, I mean, I'm Irish and we hate to throw away anything and so you just got to get that extra but you'll pay a price with salad dressing, mayonnaise, and other things. We all understand expiration dates. That means a terminus, an ending point. Did you, do you ever think about that when you're driving in traffic or trying to make the next appointment or trying to move up the, the scale and the business ladder to the next level in your company, that all of this as an end date, before the Lord called me into the ministry of teaching the word, like I'm doing now and have been for the last 15 years or so, I was a professional engineer in the state of Texas, consulting engineer, some of you know that. And we designed high-rise buildings, 91-story, 70-story, 
and even a few one and two story, if they were at NASA or someplace like that. We, we got a lot of the really nice projects. And it was a great experience. I did it for 16 years. And moved up the corporate ladder there, too, because I started in that company before I was saved. I was aggressive. I wanted to do well. And, of course, you always pay a price for that. But the Lord saved me. And then I began to think about what's going to happen to all these buildings when the righteous judgment of God comes. You ever think about what's going to happen to all these refineries when 9.0 earthquakes start happening all over the area and all that pipeline gets ruptured and gets sparked and ignited? You, you talk about the Waco tragedy in Texas, and I hope you're praying for the people there for us. Fertilizer plant, as far as we know. Wasn't terrorism? Accident. Those poor firefighters, first responders. Somebody was saying, well, they shouldn't have been so close. Well, if you know a first responder, I know some. They're way up high on my respect level. They get in there because that's their job, to save lives. But imagine that on a scale over the entire USA or over the entire USA and Europe and Russia and China. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about the day of the Lord. And so that's the subject we're going to be dealing with here. And it's very important, isn't it? <laughs> because all of our priorities are based upon our view of this world and the world to come. And if we don't think there's a world to come, and we don't think there's really going to be a righteous judgment of God, and we think that God's going to let this civilization that man has been building for all these centuries just keep going on, we're going to live for the here and now instead of for what's to come. We're going to build our roots deep in man's civilization, and we're going to live for it and guard it and protect it like it's all we've got. And maybe some of you are living that way right now, even as Christians. It's easy for us to get cloudy in that thinking, isn't it? And so it's sometimes good to, to check up a little bit and and rethink and realign our priorities. If you believe, as the word of God teaches here in 2 Thessalonians, that God is going to bring a righteous judgment on this world and recompense those who have rejected the gospel their whole lives and have even persecuted Christians for it, whose side do you want to be on when Christ comes back? Well, I hope you thought about that. I know whose side I'm on. I made that decision over 30 years ago, and I'm thankful that I'm on Christ's side. Even though right now, it doesn't look like his side is winning, does it? Do you relate to that? 
If you don't, go out and proclaim the name with uh, Christian and them on the beach next Thursday, and you'll find out what sometimes the reaction you get to align yourself with the name of Jesus in a world that is hostile to him or at least just indifferent, right? Just indifferent. It, the name has no impact upon him, and he just happens to be their creator and potential redeemer if they'll submit to him and ask him to save them. So I'd like to go back. We're going to get into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tonight. But I'd like to go back to Acts chapter 17 because the title of, of our series here we get from Acts chapter 17. And we need to understand the context of these Thessalonian letters. Paul has established the gospel in Europe. He enters into Europe when he goes into Philippi. Remember the man from Macedonia giving that call. Paul receives that vision and that call while he's in the Galatian territory, modern-day Turkey, crosses into Europe, into Philippi for the first time. And then persecution there moves on down the coast to Thessalonica. And that's where chapter 17 begins. And by the way, I'm not going to go through all the verses here, just selected verses. But you notice in verse 6, even the unbelievers... The ones who are hostile to Paul and the gospel, look at what they say about his ministry. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I love it. I wish they could say that about our ministry. Turning the world upside down for Christ. Well, we want to participate in it at some level, right? Not all of us are called to be pioneer missionaries like the Apostle Paul, but there is a role each one of us can play in doing this very thing. And this is what the unbeliever still says about it. And so we see then that because of Percy, by the way, you notice in verse 7 how they represented Paul's teaching. They said that they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. There's that name again. Another king. You see, that's why I've said I appreciate many of the songs that our younger people are developing. They talk about singing to King Jesus. That's often how I pray to him. He is my king even though he's not the world's king. But he's coming to reign. He is a king. He told that to Pilate, right? That's why I came, he says. I am a king. Are you ashamed of him being a king? I hope you're not. Of course, if, you're, if he's your king, you're, you're going to submit to the king. He has certain guidelines, rules. That are part of his kingdom. Now, decrees of Caesar, the juxtaposition here. I don't think Paul was trying to cause insurrection here in the Roman Empire because he tells us in Romans 13 that we're to submit to the magistrate and the authorities, and Caesar was the authority. He tells them to submit to him. Peter does in 1 Peter as well, right? That we're to submit to the kings and authorities that are here now, that are in that position of bringing order in this world under God. 
right? But it is interesting that they make this link because Paul must have been teaching about the kingdom of God. And so they said, well, he's teaching about the kingdom of God and Jesus is so that he must be a king. So they got it. Even though some Christians don't get it about Jesus being a king, at least some I've talked to. But he is. And to me, that's fascinating that that, again, is in this chapter, chapter 17. But Paul then moves down through Berea and then verse 16 down to Athens. And while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to God. Is that what it says? They're given over to idols. Now, Athens, I mean, you remember from your Western Civ course, right? The golden age of Greece. I mean, Athens was the center of the Greco-Roman culture and empire in that day. And it spread from there. And, of course, the city of Athens today has, has a lot of problems, don't they? They've had economic problems and difficulties. But the Greco-Roman idea and culture is the root of our civilization here in the USA. And a first century Athenian would feel right at home in Washington, D.C. when he sees or she sees all the Ionic and Doric columns in all of our architecture. They, well, that's just what we have in Athens in the first century. Nothing new under the sun, right? And so that's why I think this chapter is so important because this is God's message through his messenger, Paul, to the Greco-Roman culture, which is the culture of the USA, South America, Central America, the Caribbean, and Western Europe. We are all over here colonies of Western Europe. And they brought their culture. And our financial system, our governmental system, our political system, our moral system, such as it is, is Greco-Roman. There are only four empires, remember, in the book of Daniel. The fourth one's the Greco-Roman Empire. So we see then that what would God say to the good old USA today. Would Paul be provoked by the idols today? You say, well, we don't worship statues. Well, that's not the only form of idol there is in the Bible, right? We live in a country that is full of idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry, according to the Bible. And we live in a covetous society. It is driven by greed and money. Did you know that? And all of us accumulate. You know, we're worried about IRAs and we're worried about Social Security money and we're worried about Savings and can I retire early? Can I retire later? All of that. It's all associated. Most of our thinking in this country is about money and ours. 
right? It got real quiet in here all of a sudden. And even those of us who are believers, we struggle with being wrenched from that kind of thinking. But if we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, we will gradually get delivered from it, right? From that whole covetous idea and idolatry. Paul was provoked in his spirit. And he goes in there and he, had, and he relates to the Athenians on the basis of where they were. Which is a good method of evangelism. Right? You reach the people where they are. Not where you want them to be. Where they are. And he says, tells them about Jesus and the resurrection in verse 18. So verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, right near the Parthenon. I've been there. The Parthenon's just right up the hill. It's, it's just, it's, it's an important area in Greco-Roman civilization history. Let's put it that way. And they, they want to ask him, may we know, verse 19, this new doctrine you're, you're speaking about. You're telling us something new here, and you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, these were the philosophers of the day. These would be the professors from our universities today. I mean, FAU, FIU, they'll they, they all be represented at this group. This would be the intelligentsia, the well-educated, the PhDs, however you want to think of it. And then notice verse 21, for all, and this is, this is an amazing statement, this is what the Bible says about the Athenians. And I would have said, well, that must be most. It must be most of the Athenians or some of the Athenians. No, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either what? To tell or hear some new thing. Does that not sound like American culture? Beloved, don't be a sap for every new book that comes out at the Christian bookstore. Don't be an Athenian. Just interested in some new thing. But rather. Be a Berean. Because in verse 11 I skipped over. What are the Bereans characterized by? They're more fair minded than those in Thessalonica even. In that what did they do? They received the word with all readiness. And did what? Search for some new thing. Some new idea, some new philosophy? No. They searched the scriptures how often? No, once a month, right? Daily? What else did they do with their time? How did they have time for this? To find out whether these things were so. You see, that's, that's my message to the society today. Be a Berean instead of an Athenian. Don't be looking for some new thing. And especially as we talk about the day of the Lord and the judgment of God and the return of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of new things out there that are causing more confusion than help. Be careful what you read. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Proverbs 23, 7 tells us. You are what you think about. Paul tells the 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Believers, he says, be not deceived. Evil associations corrupt good manners. That's 1533, right? Even associating with evil corrupts you like leaven. You know, it's interesting. You sisters that work with leaven and dough, not many 
do bread making anymore, I guess, in, in their kitchens, but a few of you sisters maybe do. But you know, it's amazing. The, the dough never overcomes the leaven and makes it uncorrupt, right? It always works the other way. A little bit of leaven always spreads throughout the whole dough. It never, why doesn't it ever work the other way? Because it's a principle of nature, isn't it? And it works in the moral realm and the spiritual realm as well. A little bit of leaven will eventually permeate the whole, whether that's a Christian testimony of an individual or a whole assembly or a whole city or a whole country. And eventually the whole world, as we'll see in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. So Paul gives this stirring message. It, it's a powerful message. And he links it to their tomb to the unknown God. Here they've got all these gods, the Greek pantheon. Most of our, well, a lot of our sports teams are named after their gods. And a lot of our buildings and streets and everything, we're still linked to that culture. But they had one to the unknown God in case they missed one. <laughs> and Paul says, that's where I'm going to go. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to start with that one because they don't know the true God. That's a good link. He's, he's starting with where they are to lead them to where they need to be, see? The technique here, and it's a fascinating story talking about how God made the nations. He goes back to the Tower of Babel <laughs> and when the nations were divided. And, and all the nations came from three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? And we're, most of us here are Japhethites. There are a few Hamites and a few Shemites, but that, that's just, we've all come from those three. Do you believe that? Is that oversimplistic? That's what the Bible teaches. Are you a Berean or are you an Athenian? Search the scripture and see. But Paul says in verse 30, truly these times of ignorance. What times is he speaking of? He's speaking of the golden age of Greece and their great philosophers. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and, and all the Greek classics, as the civilization people call them. To me, this is the classic. The Bible's the classic. And, but, and you know what God says? It, those were times of ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of God. Because the golden age of Greece, in all their philosophy, there was no acknowledgement of the true God. They rejected him and invented a God of their own imagination. Just like the culture we're in today. See, God says through Paul, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God changes something here. He commands how many? All men. All men just in Greece, just in Athens. He commands all men everywhere to do what? Repent. To change your mind. See? We had some brothers leave a meeting over in another part of the country. I won't say where, because God doesn't command anything. God doesn't, he doesn't make any demands on it. He doesn't. What Bible are they reading? It's all over the Bible. Is it okay for God to make commandments on his creatures? to place requirements on his creatures? Well, he does. Here, he commands all men everywhere to repent or else. 
And repentance is to acknowledge that we're lost. Because before we repented, we thought we were okay. We thought maybe even we were religious. Maybe we thought we pleased God because we gave so much in the offering every week. Or because we attended Sunday school without any missing days. And we finally, by the conviction of the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, realize, no, no, we, we're way short of the holiness of God. No way. and We'll never get there. We'll never be able to buy it. We need a Savior, see. And then we call on the name of the Lord because Romans 10, 13 says that how many who call on the name of the Lord? All. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. But you've got to call on him. The world doesn't know that. I didn't know that before I was saved. And then the verse, verse 31, that we're getting our title for him. Why is it that all men everywhere need to repent? Because... God has appointed a day. That's the day of the Lord. He's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. So God has decided. He has set a day. That's what we're calling the expiration date of civilization. Because the civilization of man needs to be replaced, beloved. Sorry if that offends you. I hope you can say amen to that. It needs replacing. But see, civilization and the people that are espousing it, they think they're bringing the world to utopia. Did, did you know that? You go to the United Nations building there in, in New York, and, and that's where they're, you know, they're going to lay down the plowshares, right? And, and their swords and the pruning hooks, it's right on the building, quoting from Micah. They didn't realize that the UN isn't going to bring world peace. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's when they say peace and safety, what's going to happen? Sudden destruction is going to come upon them like a woman in childbearing. And they shall not escape. You see, it's when they think they've got it all together. And the European Union has been saying this for 25, 30 years. We're waiting on the right man to bring it all together. That's all well documented. Now, they're not saying that because they want to agree with Daniel chapter 9. Because they don't value the Bible. They probably don't even know where Daniel 9 is. But we do. And we know that God has appointed a day when he's going to bring a righteous judgment. One of the commentaries says people that are disturbed about God's righteous judgment are people that are living too comfortably in this world. If you were under persecution, you'd be wanting God's righteous judgment and justice to come, wouldn't you? If I were under persecution, but the fact that we're not under persecution and living comfortably, we say, well, that's a little harsh for God to bring righteous judgment. After all, this world isn't that bad. Well, it's going to be. It's already changing, beloved. The Holy Spirit is moving back his restraint on evil. Have you noticed? I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock not to see it. I grew up as a hippie in the 60s and 70s. I had hair down to here and surfing and all of that and... 
We had our own culture, our subculture, substandard culture. But we didn't believe there was a day coming where we were going to be having to acknowledge the righteous judgment of God then. Now I believe it. And so the Lord says through Paul, it's by one man whom he's ordained, and God can make that decision. And is there any doubt in your mind who that man is? We were talking a lot about him earlier in the previous meeting. His name is Jesus. Do you know him today? His name is Jesus. In my former religion, we, we bowed when we said his name. So I still, you know, you catch me genuflecting almost here. That's not all a bad thing. And you know how we know it's him? Paul says he's given assurance to this. God has. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. <laughs> now, beloved, you do all the searching you want to. God will give you some amount of time. He's not going to give you unlimited time. Do all the searching you want to. There's only one person that's ever been raised from the dead. And you say, well, no, Lazarus and the widow of Nain's son. That's not resurrection, beloved. Do a little study. You'll realize they came right back in a natural body that had to die again. Where resurrection is applied to a person that goes to a body that's a glorified body that never perishes. That didn't happen to Lazarus. It hasn't happened to anybody. It didn't happen to Buddha. It didn't happen to Muhammad. It didn't happen to any other religious leader. Plug in whoever you want to. Harry Krishna or Mr. Moon just died, didn't he, recently? No, only Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. You can go over there and check out the empty tombs. Two locations, they believe, are the locations. I have my ideas on which one's the right one, but either way, you can go check both. They're empty. He's in heaven, just like the Bible says. But as we close here this morning, it's not only the fact that there's a day of judgment coming that I want to emphasize, especially on the Lord's Day morning. I want to emphasize the fact that, yes, there's a day of judgment coming that's soon. It's future, but soon. I mean, the changes that are happening in our world today, they're happening. It used to be you'd have to wait a year or a decade in the 60s. They're happening now by the week. Have you noticed? Are you ready? Are you ready to stand before the judge? Of all the earth. See, we, we're not in that day yet, thankfully. We're in a day of grace and forgiveness. That's what God's offering today. And I'm so thankful we live in that day. And there's still opportunity to proclaim and live the gospel, isn't there? There's still hope for renewal and restoration. There's still hope for broken lives.
people suffering under terrible addictions that can't get free. People in hopeless despair and depression. And what do we, we just say, well, at least I know I'm saved. Too bad for them. Should that be our attitude? Would that be the attitude of our Lord Jesus? Who left heaven where it was comfortable and secure to come down here and dwell among sinful men. I pray we'll think about that. You know, I remember talking to a man a few years ago in another part of the country. You don't know him. He was in his early 80s. He said, you know, brother, he, he was a brother in the Lord, and I was talking to him, so he called me brother. He said, brother, he said, I spent most of my time just trying to make money. Me and my wife, we sat, watched TV every week, week on, week out, just continued to, all we did, we watched TV, I made my money, we had our comfortable security, and I lived totally for this life, and now I'm looking back, and I've wasted almost all of it. He said, go and tell the people to learn from my experience. You know, the water's already under the bridge for him. I mean, it, you can't go back and live it. You can't even go back and live last year. Me either, right? That's done. It's in the historical record books. But we can perhaps rearrange our priorities from here on. Like the young sister I met some years ago who decided in her early 20s to leave her career and to give up for the time being the idea of ever being married and having children and enjoying all of that to go serve the Lord in Arian Jaya, translating the Bible to a tribe that doesn't even have the New Testament in their language. And she's still there doing it. Now, which one really believed the gospel that Paul's proclaiming here? I challenge you young people. We're living in the information age. That's what the world calls it. And it's accurate. We're living in unprecedented times because we never had the technology before your generation to live in the information age. We didn't have iPhones. We didn't have iBooks. We didn't have the Internet. And I challenge you young people, think about it. Think about where you want to spend your time, your talents, your treasures, what you want your priorities to be. Us older people, most of it's behind us. We could still rearrange things if God wants us to. I hope we'd be flexible enough to do that. But when you get old, you get inflexible. But you younger people, Live in the information age. You know when Daniel chapter 12 says that knowledge will increase, some believe that that may, have, may be a prophecy of the information age, which you can make a good case for that. I think that it very likely is forming, talking more likely in the context about knowledge of the Lord's return will increase and understanding of the day of the Lord. But either way, the information age has happened and it was part of God's plan. But it can be used to get the gospel message out too, can't it? It can be used for evil. It can be used for the gospel. Be creative. Think outside the box. 
Think of ways to use it for the glory of the Lord. And if you're here this morning and you haven't thought about the identity of Jesus Christ, the fact that he came to this earth to die for you personally, and he bore the judgment of your sins on his own body on the tree, and you're just sitting back and not doing anything about it, maybe indifferently, what do you think God's going to say to you when you face him? And you knew the message. You, if you didn't know it before today, you know it now. <laughs> and he's raised from the dead, so you're going to face him. All of us are going to face him. Even believers are going to face him, according to 2 Corinthians 5, to answer for what we've done, both good and bad. That's what accountability means. But for those of us who are believers, we can confess our sins and get right with God now, can't we? If you're lost, you just need to turn to the Lord and call out on him to save you. Acknowledge that you're a sinner before a holy God. And there's no other provision, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There's no other place to turn to. That's God's only provision for you. And you don't have to wait till you're 16 or 21 or 25 to make that decision. That's presumptuous sin, according to the Bible. You're presuming that you're going to have years you may not get. A friend of mine was texting while she was driving, and her, my cousin's daughter was in the front seat, and she got off and hit a telephone pole, and my 16-year-old niece went into eternity. Boom. Just like that. They had just played soccer the day before. I don't imagine she was thinking that was the last day of her life. None of us knows. Driving around the ring road of this city may be the instrument that's going to put you or me into eternity today. So it's a solemn matter, isn't it? Where are you going to be when the judgment of God comes? It's up to you. So, Father, we thank you for your word and for the instruction and encouragement it gives us. We pray as we think about these matters, the judgment of God and the righteousness of God, and, and we're going to be seeing that there's many wonderful things to come too, Lord. We thank you for your great goodness in offering, even offering and providing for salvation for anyone, for all men everywhere. That means men and women, children. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for thinking of us in our time of need, and we pray, Lord, that you'll save some here today. Save some here today. Help them to understand their need of a Savior and to call out on the name of the Lord Jesus specifically to save them. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, maybe you've rocked our boat a little bit this morning. You've rocked mine. And that's always good if it leads us into greater devotion and surrender to you. Guide us, we pray. Help us to be a testimony in this area of the city, in this local meeting and gathering. Be with us as we travel on now. 
And we thank you, O Lord, for your great goodness. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.